Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today, we'll be reviewing Bestiary 1. This is part of our book review series where we review every hardcover book in the Pathfinder RPG. Christian, we're, we're finally getting to something I want to do for a long time, which is reviewing the books. We've done overviews of classes and player races, but now it's time to really get into the nitty-gritty, the books. Quite an undertaking we have ahead of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, in lieu of how big this undertaking is, our first episode here is on the Beast Cherry, not on the core rulebook, because that's a large book, and it's very intimidating to cover. <laughs> So here's how we're going to be reviewing the bestiaries. We'll talk about the new beast types introduced. There are types like outsider, animal, dinosaur, etc. But when I say new beast types, I mean categories where they generally do an introductory page or two talking about them. For example, in this book, we'll find angels as a new type. We'll talk about some of the beasts that stood out to us personally, talk themes, how useful we think the book is, then at the end, give a short verdict, whether or not we think the book is a must-buy or a skip, if we think it's worth the cost, you know, our general feelings on it. Now, before Bestiary 1, there was no semblance of creatures for the game. This was actually the first instance of getting any type of creature, correct? Yes. This is the second book ever published for the Pathfinder RPG, the first one being the core rulebook, which I do not believe included any monsters. And this is almost 300 pages worth of monsters. So let, let's 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 crack it open. Let's get into it. Let's talk about one of the new beast types, elementals. I love elementals. I think they're just plain old cool. Living fire or water coming at you is just like a great image for me. And I think it's super easy to introduce in your campaign. I mean, when can you not find an opportunity to just throw an elemental at one of your players? As long as you're, I don't know, in the elements, you'll find a way, uh, which makes it, I think, great for beginner GMs. And something that is really good about the elementals, which you can't say about every creature in this book or every creature type, is that there's a good spread of CR. CR is challenge rating. It measures how um, how difficult the encounter will be. So this most uh, elementals range from CR one to CR eleven. So as long as your party's you know eleven or below, you can find a good way to introduce elementals. And even beyond that, just having multiple elementals will increase that. Uh, so no matter what terrain you're in, uh, it's a very good last-minute encounter thing as well. Well, not every terrain. The only elementals introduced in Bestiary 1 were earth, air, fire, and water. Some of the more specialized elementals weren't until later Bestiaries. We only have the core four elements in Bestiary 1. I think in any terrain, you can find one of those. Oh, definitely. Especially um, uh, air. I think <laughs> no matter where you are, you don't got air. And if, and if you're in the one spot with no air, you're in water, guess what? We got water. And they all usually have one cool ability, which isn't overwhelming. There's a lot of really cool creatures that have, like, nine things and, like, oh, no, I have Cthulhu's entries, but he's a CR 20 billion and I have 600 pages worth of stats. I don't know what to do. Uh, that is an exaggeration. It's exactly he's his own book. He's very interesting. Um, <laughs> but these guys usually have cool cool abilities. Like, the water guy can make a vortex. Um, they're not elementals. They're called guys. The water guy, the fire guy can burn you. <laughs> Our first creature type is the guys. Yeah, the, the, the boys. Watch out for the fire, boys. 
but they're also, at least for me, they were a good introduction to sort of a uh, new mechanic slowly for me as I as I grabbed a different beast said the beast cherry. This one sort of introduced me to immunity from critical hits because I had a rogue in my party, a, a ninja, which is a variant of the rogue. And uh, when he went to critical hit this guy, it didn't work. He's immune to flanking, precision damage, critical hits. It's just very interesting, uh, and it's simple, sort of easy to understand the the elemental traits, as well as that these guys are usually immune to their own element and vulnerable to a a corresponding one. Not always, but like the the fire that goes and be vulnerable to ice, that sort of thing. They're also a good way to introduce a soft counter. Uh, they are immune to critical hits and precision damage, meaning that you just straight up can't flank them. You can't use that class ability against them. But against, say, uh, unarmed combatant or a natural weapon combatant, uh, something like a fire elemental is a soft counter in that it hurts whenever you punch fire, believe it or not. Uh, so you still have the <laughs> option of doing your main thing, but it's going to come at a cost. And I just like the elementals. You can really flavor them however you want. Although, like, by lore, they're supposed to be from these planes of whatever element. You can think of any various reasons why the element of wherever you are is coming to life. What exactly it looks like. Maybe it looks like a different person. Maybe it doesn't look like your standard elemental. They're really fluid in how you can represent them. Yeah, and speaking of representation, I think the art's great for them. I think they could have gone really lame with the art. Uh, but, like, the stone guy looks like this awesome sort of hulking, uh, very scary beast with, like, a little pet dog. The fire guy looks like a serpent. The water thing was very abstract. You sort of see a face in water and, like, a shark made of water attacking you instead of just, like, a hand slapping you. Makes sense. Uh, I'll probably mention the art a lot. I really appreciate the art in this book, which is sort of, like, half of the reason I'll pick <laughs> a beast. Is I, I like the way it looks that I need to use it. But let's, we got a lot of types of covers, so let's move on. The next type I'd like to cover is actually three different types, and that's Angels, Archons, and Azatas. That's A-Z-A-T-A-S. And these are all sort of, when you think of what an angel would be, these are all sort of that area. Though each of these are sort of the, the good aligned creatures. Angels are neutral, Archons are lawful, Azatas are chaotic, but they're all good. And I've always sort of loved the mythos of angels versus demons, probably because it stemmed from Christianity, which is my heritage. I say stemmed because it's very much not what Christians believe, but I think they're cool. I mean, I think it's hard to not find uh, inspiration or a reason to include angels and demons eventually somewhere in one of your campaigns. Uh, Something that's really cool about them is that they have this sort of like gender fluidity, and I'm not sure why, but it grasps me that you can look at an angel and it can be androgynous and not for any sort of like representation reason. Uh, I'm not sure how to articulate it. I just think it's cool and it sets the angels apart. Uh, I sort of... I sort of used this in one of my campaigns when my players came across angels and they couldn't exactly tell the gender, like they looked effeminate, but they didn't uh, appear effeminate in different ways. And when they talked to each other, they they used very loving language, but it was sort of a, a brotherly, sisterly loving language, a family loving language, but like a little beyond that. I just really liked to, to play with that, that boundary and make them, it sort of helped me make them feel a little bit alien. And then as part of my visual bent, I think these guys always have fantastic art, especially the angels and the azadas. There are slight visual differences between them. An angel is kind of what we expect. That's the standard, exactly what you think it is. Uh, archons are a little bit different. The only archons introduced in the bestiary, two of them are inanimate objects, and one of them is a hound archon, which is kind of like an Anubis-looking thing. 
So good to know that if you're a lawful good person, when you die, you're either going to become an inanimate object or a furry. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> and then Azadas, they're more, they almost have like a fairy bend to them. They're a little bit more colorful. They look a lot like normal angels, but they had to use a lot more colors instead of the stark whites, golden lights, things like that. Actually, correct you real quick. It's only one inanimate object. The hound and then a person looks kind of like an angel. A uh, lantern and trumpet. The trumpet isn't a trumpet. I always thought it was literally a trumpet. No, it's, it's <laughs> I didn't a woman. Read the description it's, at all. <laughs> it's it's a woman with angelic wings who bears a trumpet. Well, I like my head cannon much better. Okay, we'll stick with that. <laughs> but I'm with you. I, I I look forward to seeing other bestiaries. What we get at the archons is it going to kind of fill that that niche? Yes, but you wouldn't think of an angel as a sort of hound-looking creature. I'm with you there. But th- there's a problem for me is that. Almost all of these uh, three types of creatures are high CR. There's very few medium, only too low. So they're really only fightable at those levels. It does make them seem untouchable outer beings, though, that I sort of want them to be. You wouldn't think of angels as sort of easy to slay. Um, but it, it means I can't really introduce them in my campaign in any sort of encounter until way later, which is sort of unfortunate. What I really like about the angels is that for me, uh, for a lot of these beasts that have spell-like abilities, it's the at-will spell-like abilities that really determine, you know, what this thing can do. Why is the angel like the cream of the crop of the good outer plane? At-will, they have a bunch of at-will abilities. I'm just going to go over a few of them. They get holy smite at-will. That's definitely something you would expect an angel to do. Holy word at-will. Remove curse, remove disease, remove fear. Those are just such interesting choices that really, you know, solidify what you would expect an angel to do. Dispel evil. Discern mm-hmm. lies. You can't lie to one. Something I didn't check, but could almost all of them fly? I'd assume so. Most of the higher CR ones. Uh, I know the lantern archons can. The hound archons cannot. <laughs> Everyone can fly, but these one guys are like, oh, could, could somebody pick me up, please? Thank you. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I uh, usually make them all just angels, quote unquote, for my campaign. This book is for the home brewer, I think, generally. Uh, so don't ever sort of feel restricted to the groupings they pick. I still keep all the stats, even in the alignment, especially since there are certain abilities which depend on alignment. I mean, if PCs of various alignments work together, why not beasts? Next is the golem. I sort of definitely think these guys in the same sort of category as the elemental. These are the sort of mindless constructs. They're not restricted to the elements like the elementals are, but they... Uh, they sort of move to the aspects of the elements. There's the iron golem, the stone golem, the wood golem, the ice golem, that sort of thing. And pretty much any non-living material, but they can still do stuff like the flesh golem. The important thing about golems is that all the golems, for the most part, I, th- I think all of them, have the construct subtype. Constructs have some very specific mechanics and how they work, which make golems very interesting creatures. Uh, they don't have a constitution score which is like the number one thing. They do have hit points, but they don't have a con score, so they're basically immune to anything that would require a fortitude save. They don't actually have like a living body. They can't get sick. They can't bleed. Uh, they can't be affected by death stuff like necromancy. Being a mindless thing, it's immune to any mind-affecting effects, uh, but they can't heal themselves. They can't be healed except for things that would fix a machinery or a construct. So there's some spells like make whole that can heal them. Uh, I just find the way that they work is usually very interesting. On top of having all these construct immunities, 
a lot of times the golems also have individual specific mechanics on how they work and how they interact with specific spells. Something that's interesting about golems in their lore is that supposedly they have elemental spirits in them, and that's what makes them sort of tick, what makes them work, how magical being uh, casters have brought them to life. So I kind of, I feel bad for those elementals that are in there. They sort of, you know, chained in a prison to be mindless forever. Which, which kind of makes sense when you when you read the lore of like these ele- these ele- uh, these golems sometimes turn on their creators when their spirits break free. Yeah, I'd be a little bit upset too. I think they're basically all little animals stuck in the robots in the Sonic the Hedgehog games. That is exactly correct. What a great reference, Christian. One point to you. I've given you a point. You can do whatever you want with that. You can turn that into the store at the end for special prizes. I've never had a point before. I don't know what to do. <laughs> don't worry. The prizes are, like, prohibitively expensive. You'll never be able to spend them all. Uh, similar to how I like elementals for introducing a defensive trait, I like golems for introducing DR, sort of, to me. DR, damage reduction. Uh, and they have a different set of defensive abilities. They're usually immune to a ton of stuff. Uh, like you said, they have no, no con score, no int score. They can't heal. They sort of have these interesting little traits about them that sort of don't overwhelm you, but teach you at least as a GM and then as a player as you come across them some sort of different things. Because Pathfinder is a game of a gigantic rule set, and things like this can introduce you to it slowly, this sort of show-don't-tell mentality that everyone usually proposes. Uh, I don't know if propose is, is a word, but I've used, used it, so take that. Uh, and they're very good to use versus a heavy magic party, as they're immune to spells and magical spell-like abilities, which can make them very tough. That's where your tank gets in front and goes, I got this, finally, thank you. And then they hit them and go, oh, oh, they have DR. <laughs> well, if the you know spellcaster is intelligent, can make a knowledge check. Like I said, a lot of the elementals are either immune or weak to certain types of magic trying to find an example one from the core spell book ah so for example the clay golem mostly immune to magic but if you cast specific spells on them it does affect them like if you cast the move earth spell on a clay golem you can just drive it back 120 feet deal a bunch of damage and it gets no save against that Mm -hmm. and no one's gonna be surprised when you find out the ice golem is vulnerable to fire wait what usually the dr can be overcome with adamantine uh, in this case, in this book, every single one can become over. All their DR can be overcome with adamantine. I really like that golems are mindless. My most fun ways of implementing golems, they they don't have a mind of their own. They don't have a will. They simply follow whatever order they were given when they were created. Or maybe they don't have orders. So what exactly they're doing and why they're doing it can be a complete mystery to the party, and they may want to find out why. Or maybe they'll just be curious, like why was it only. Walking two feet that way and then ten feet back and then doing that forever. Definitely. You can do a lot of things with, like, ancient abandoned temples with that. Make a cool little mystery. So, just like golems, sort of were the counterpart to elementals, I like to talk about the counterpart to angels, and that's demons and devils. Demons are chaotic, devils are lawful, but they're both evil. And in later Beast Jerry's, we'll, we'll finally get the neutral part of that. But in this Beast Jerry, we just got these two guys. And I still like them for the reason I talked about the angels. That's sort of mythos. Uh, I think they're interesting. Uh, and the majority of them look super cool. They're often very monstrous looking. And as such a visual person, as I told you before, I just like, I look at them and I go, wow, I want this guy. Let me see. Oh, his CR's too high. Well, I'll put a little a little piece of paper in there to make sure I use them again later. It's always fun when the, when your players aren't just fighting stats. It's cool when you can explain, show. I, I always, whenever I, my players fight, almost 
every time I love the picture in the book, I just show it to them. This is what you're fighting. And they go, holy crap, that thing's covered in tar and it has all these spikes. They're, they're very varied, too. It's not just like I think angels a lot of times you can get, oh, it's a fair looking person with wings. Oh, wait, this person has an extra two wings. Oh, this person's wielding a hammer instead of a sword. Not demons. Demons are like, this one looks like a vulture. This one looks like a freaking turtle shell with a jackal head. This one's got all sorts of different differences. A lot of the more interesting demons and devils are higher CR, as you mentioned, um, which I actually, for one campaign, had a solution for them being able to interact with demon-like entities without actually having to be, like, level 10+. plus. Uh, there was a group of bandits, the Red Smiles, that basically their leader was doing, like, false devil demon packs on their members uh, so that they had some of the abilities. They would basically go through, like, transformations. Uh, they would have some of the interesting abilities of demons and devils, but, you know, they were only, like, level 4 or 5 in that campaign. Uh, something I don't like about demons and devils is that their immunities and such really seem random to me. Like, I've looked it up before this. I still can't remember. One of them's immune to, like, acid and electricity and poison. The other one's immune to, like, some overlapping ones of those, but not other parts of it. And I can never remember how. I don't really get that. A lot of their powers are insanely powerful. Like, basically every demon has true sight or, like, see invisibility or something like that. And they basically across the board have greater teleport at will. So there's probably something I'm missing in the lore of demons, why they can't just teleport at will and go mess stuff up in the world. But I've always had trouble representing true demons and such because they can be like, oh, well, I'm out of here whenever I want. Definitely. Uh, one of the books we reviewed in the book fair or read is um, Pirate's Prophecy, in which they included a drowning devil, which I don't know if that's in this book, which is in a further piece, Jerry. But uh, the point is, it's a devil. And uh, they use that sort of teleporting thing. Like when they came across, it was like, oh, no, we have to fight one of those things. Dag nabbit. And it would freaking teleport. I think it duplicated itself or something. And it made it very, very difficult. Maybe this is a, a good potential for a boss fight. We've talked about before how boss fights can be difficult because the players can just beat on it and only ever gets one chance to go. But if it can do something, teleport, it's just difficult to track down and never get hit it. That could be interesting. But I'm with you there. It's very difficult when the encounter is, oh, hi, I'm gone. And not only am I gone, but I'm really gone. I want to talk about one of the, one, one of the demons real quick is they actually do a good job on the succubus. Uh, actually, she looks attractive and cool at the same time. She's got this, like, intricate but not garish tattoo. Uh, usually other media makes them look, like, so monstrous. You think, how could anyone fall for this ever? Uh, but this one, I think they did a great job on. Pathfinder figured out a way to still make all their women attractive but not show any anything that would make it adult. Good job, Pathfinder. Good use of red silk. That tasteful lining of red silk. Christian, most people know that Pathfinder came from Dungeons and Dragons. They've continued the tradition of making dragons important creatures, and dragons are in this book. In fact, you'll find them in every bestiary, but here are sort of the traditional dragons. What can you tell us about dragons? Dragons are the cream of the crop. They always rise to the top. Um, dragons are insane. I demand the rest of this explanation rhymes. <laughs> well, I'm not that clever, Sue. That's not going to happen. The only two types of dragons introduced in Bestiary 1 were metallic and chromatic dragons. For reasons I won't go into, metallic dragons, your silvers, your golds, they're all good for the most part. They fight for the forces of good. Chromatic dragons, basically all the colors, red, green, black, they're all evil. They like messing stuff up. They like raiding. They like stealing things. So on and so forth. 
Uh, dragons are insanely powerful. They're basically gigantic, full BAB spellcasters with a <laughs> ton of spell-like abilities, um, a lot of movement options, a lot of um, immunities. You never really want to mess with a dragon. They don't even freaking need their spell-like abilities. Their attacks, their physical attacks are monstrous. Like, they they basically have, like, two claws, one bite, two wings, one tail slap, and it's like, I was dead on the second attack, you can stop now. <laughs> yeah, if, if, if you manage to get full attacked by a dragon, you're going to be messed up. In fact, I think in Trailblazer Season 1, you'll find a spot where somebody made the mistake of thinking they could take a, a, a full attack from a dragon, and afterwards went, hmm, I need to not do this again, and ran away. <laughs> All dragons have a breath weapon in accordance with their color. So red has fire, green has acid, uh, so on and so forth. And then some of them are cones, some of them are lines. Mm. Uh, they get different spell-like abilities and different movement options reliant on their color as well. So the mm -hmm. uh, black dragon, the swamp one, has like a swim speed, uh, things like that. Some of them have burrow speeds. Um, it's, it's hard. I, I was never honestly a big fan of dragons. I understand that they're supposed to be these insanely powerful beings. But it's so easy to make something powerful by just making it a full BAB spellcaster. I've always found dragons actually pretty boring to go against because they do everything. Hmm. Interesting. I, I've always found them to be a fun encounter because they're one of the rare things that can be the single beast that poses a very large threat. Even when it's at sort of the same CR of the party. And maybe you have to bring it like one up a little higher depending on how many players you have. Um... And the fact that they can fly has always been very difficult for me to make an encounter. I feel like my players can win, uh, especially at medium to low levels versus a dragon. I like the breath weapon. I like the different spell-like abilities. I I'm interested to hear that opinion because I really do enjoy dragons. And while I've never used them in my campaign as sort of like the thinkers and the planners, I've definitely used them as the big bad monster when you come across it. Everyone's afraid of these things, and there's a big reason why. The most successful dragon encounters I've had is where I played them suboptimally. I like dragons, uh, not mechanically, but I really like them thematically. I like them as allies. I like them as an NPC to talk to and plan hmm. with because they're incredibly old and very intelligent. It's true. use them so very differently. It's just a good example of how these, no one, you no one has to be pigeonholed on how you have to use any of these creatures, either by tradition or by what the book says. You can use them however way you you enjoy. That's really cool. And you speak of intelligence, one of my favorite things is how dumb the white dragon is, which I think is all a holdover from D&D. &D. The white dragon is the lowest intelligence of all the dragons. Let me see if I can... Yes, it's always, like, the lowest stat ever. Like, the, the young one has an intelligence of eight. It's, like, stupider than the average human. I love it. I love it so much. Because you think majestic dragon, we have to we have to negotiate with it, we have to ingratiate it, maybe give it gifts, and then when you when you you realize too late, oh he's an idiot. Oh no, th <laughs> this dragon's an idiot. That he's the child that got a gun. Oh, a lot of the much older dragons, much of the higher CR dragons, have the ability frightful presence, which just means if you are anywhere near them and they have this frightful presence activated, they can have it activated whenever they want. You have to make a pretty high DC will save, or you just flee in terror. And I just think that's so ham-fisted. <laughs> like, I want to run away from this dragon anyway, because I know what they can do, and I'm already terrified. I don't need that to tell me, like, ooh, you're scared. I I've never been a fan of, honestly, the fear mechanic in general in Pathfinder, I guess, is what that stems from, because I don't like the idea of someone just running from combat. They're basically out of combat. 
but I do love the crush ability. I like the idea of a dragon just kind of landing on you, and he's just so massive that you can't do anything about it. I have I have killed a player using that before. Obviously, <laughs> there was things that happened before, but that was what took him. That was what polished him off. Um, I actually did like the frightful presence. I was reading it now to make sure. Uh, you, you said with higher dragons, maybe it changes, but. I've always found out the fight the fightful presence doesn't make them run away, it just makes them shaken or frightened, which is fine for a battle. I, I would agree if it made them run away, that'd be like kind of sort of lame. But I like the idea of because we've all had the player who's like, no matter what you throw at them, they're always like the most, you know, awesome and courageous warrior ever. And it's like, come on, dude, I think you might be afraid of this dragon that's literally the size of a mountain. I, really. So sometimes you have to throw in these sort of gamey ways to make players reflect that they would be afraid well i think it's that every time they make an attack or something they activate frightful presence and i if i correct me if i'm wrong but i leave like frightened shake and stack and eventually become uh the one where you have to run away panicked i do not believe so i believe the frightful presence is a one-time save if you save you have 24 hours we have to make it again if you fail that's just that you've you've done it once uh and it i don't believe it stacks beyond uh fright, frightened or shaken uh, I was just reading it now, but I'm reading the back of Beast Jerry 1. It could have changed, or maybe it gets more complicated at the higher level, but um, that's the way I believe it works. Regardless, I do understand what you're saying and why you don't like it. But let's let's uh, let's move on. We've, we've, we've now come to, I think, something that people of many fantasy genres love, and that is the lycanthropes. Lycanthropes are the, the werewolf, your were-cat, your were-anything, anything that... That is person by day, animal, creature by night. And uh, the lycanthropes here, they do a cool job at sort of giving you the different sort of lycanthropes. You're like, if you're a born lycanthrope, you have control over it. It becomes more of a weapon and a tool, then it becomes a curse. But if you are if you become a lycanthrope part in your life by being struck, bitten by a lycanthrope, uh, sort of like how a vampire would make you into one by biting you, Lycanthropes work the very same way, the curse of lycanthropy. Then you're sort of uncontrollable. The moon is full. You you have to save. Otherwise, you're going to transform and you'll be mindless. You're going to turn into a completely different person. Uh, so I like the way they sort of made that. So you can have both both sides of the werewolf, of, of the lycanthrope. And, of course, the werewolf really is the one to talk about here. I mean, who cares about the other lycanthrope in this book the were-rat oh i wanted to be a were-rat that was my fantasy maybe it is yours but i don't think it's a lot of people's so here's here's a cool example of a shape shifting mechanic wait no one should want to be a werewolf anyway you kill people (laughs) if you i like i I played a werewolf character who was uh born a werewolf so he could he could transform on the fly and whenever you do include lycanthropy in a game you have a big choice on how you're going to represent it because it doesn't have to be as clean cut as you know make a will save on the night of the full moon, GM tells you what happens. You can really do whatever you want with that, how you want to represent it, and that's a really big decision to make, and that makes all the difference on how your players will react to lycanthropy in your game. Mm-hmm. The The rules in the book are pretty pretty difficult, involves getting a certain, or making some difficult saves, having a certain amount of time, otherwise you've got it pretty much forever. It's a tough thing to deal with. I will say they did a good job at the shape-shifting mechanic itself, uh, the template can be applied to players, and that that's sort of a good way to do it. I mean, if it was just a beast entry, it'd be lame. But this is a beast entry that's an example, so that you can add this template to anybody who gets this curse. And like you're saying, when you choose to include it, this becomes like a real fear 
of a dangerous curse because when you get hurt, when you get hit, it's like, I want to fight this thing, but I know if I make one mistake, if I get hit once by this thing, I got to make a save. And I feel that save once, this is a big problem. And this is a, this is a side quest we got to do right now, or I'm done. It makes it very, very scary to fight even one that you're pretty sure, oh, I can kill this thing and live. But am I pretty sure I can kill it and not get hit by it? Mm, maybe I'm a little scared of this thing that I normally wouldn't be very scared of. The downside is it is only a CR2 creature in the bestiary. So you have to do some work. Either you give it the advanced template or you know apply the template to another custom base character or beast, uh, which can be difficult. Uh, it's sort of easier, I think, when you have software like Hero Lamb. Uh, but yeah, it's only CR2. Yeah, it makes you afraid of creatures you otherwise wouldn't be afraid of, like rats. <laughs> All right, Christian, you got me. Let's talk next about the giant. Christian, I get the impression that giants are important to Paizo. Is that right? Uh, what gave you that idea? The entire Giant Slayer campaign path? <laughs> or the entire three-fifths of Rise of the Ruin Lords? <laughs> uh, giants are really, it, by lore, they're really, really powerful. They're, I mean, they're literally just giant people. They're incredibly strong. They're really terrifying because they can just, like, chuck boulders at you from, like, a mile away. And that hurts. <laughs> but they're lore-wise, they're really only inhibited by, like, constant infighting, from what I understand. So they don't usually go out and affect normal-sized people. They're up in the mountains fighting amongst each other, having power struggles. Uh, particularly in Rise of the Ruin Lords, you know, obviously they get coordinated by something, and then they start becoming a problem. Which, when you have a big army of giant people that just can siege a town, not with siege weaponry, but just by grabbing a rock and throwing it at your walls, it becomes a really big problem. Yeah. Uh, they're not, they've never been the most inspiring enemy to me, because they don't really do, other than throwing rocks, most of them don't do anything particularly interesting. There's some of the more specialized giants, there's like storm giants and things like that, which cloud giants, they have like lightning-related stuff, sometimes spell-like abilities, but for the most part, they're just giant people that hit really hard. Really, really hard. They do a ton of damage. Be careful. I've used them on occasion. Good to have to throw a larger than medium creature at your party, but uh, not particularly inspiring to me. And fitting on that theme, next is the genie. And I don't care much for genies, but Paisa seems to love them like we saw in the uh, race overview series where we saw that there was uh, the elemental races that always came from genies and djinn. Uh, talk to us about them, Christian. So they're, they're kind of like elementals, they're outsiders from all the different kinds of planes, except obviously they're more intelligent than an elemental. All of them do typically go along with an element, so your genie, your D-G-I-N-N-I, they have to do with air, but then you have your Freedy, which has to do with fire. They're all pretty intelligent and they have their own communities. Uh, they are, I think they're pretty interesting. They're, they're not the most like awe-inspiring thing, but... A lot of them have really, really cool spell-like abilities, where even if they're not a tough combat, like these genies show up, they tend to have really high charisma, they're intelligent, uh, they, they are going to be a memorable encounter, if nothing else. Like, for instance, the this earth-flavored genie, they can shove you into a wall, and you actually get stuck in the earth of that wall, and you have to sit there trying to break out of it, you're, you're like half-melded into the rock. Not a super powerful thing. You'll eventually get out, but a really interesting thing that your players are going to remember. I suppose we didn't mention this with the giants either, but you will find sort of the elements, the air, which they call the cloud, the fire, the frost. It's a good way, I guess, to sort of pad out different entries. I mean, you say, oh, we'll just add the three elements to start with. 
Some of the genies do have the wish ability, so your players might end up seeking one out to get their wishes granted, but then the genie's like, well, you gotta do this to me. Because the way that the genie wish works is that people can ask a genie for a wish, and they can only, they can use the wish spell, but only to non-genies. They can't use it on each other. I don't know exactly why that is lore-wise, but they, they just have to I know why can... it is balance-wise. <laughs> but I mean, your players might end up seeking one out because they're one of the known things that can grant wishes. Cool. So that is all these sort of titled types. Like I said, there is a bunch of other types. Here are some small ones to note. There's animals, and there's dire versions of most animals. This sort of keeps animals in medium-level campaigns. Uh, there's various plant creatures. There's actually a good number of those. Uh, there's familiars, different little animals. Uh, there's player races. And this book has monster rules, such as creation, feats that usually can only be applied to monsters. Like we were talking about giants. They have a certain uh, trait that always makes them all so that they have stone throwing, um, that sort of thing. And there's great appendices at the back of the book, which will will organize everything by CR or by, you know, sort of type, um, whether or not they are something you'll find in a dungeon or in a forest, you know, terrain, all sorts of different ways uh, to organize them. So you can find just what you want in your campaign. I'm in a desert campaign. Let me look up that section. I need an evil type. Let me look up that section. Oh, hey, didn't see you there. My friend Christian and I were just playing some role-playing games. Hey, Caleb, do you think these guys would be interested in joining us? You know, I bet they would. I mean, if they listen to Pathfinder Academy, they gotta be cool, right? If role-playing games are your thing, why don't you guys check out our other podcast, Trailblazers? Trailblazers is an actual play podcast where you can see many of the concepts addressed in this show come to life. Season 2 of Trailblazers has been great so far, and I especially like that you can get into it without any prior knowledge of Season 1. It's definitely a fun adventure, especially if you like mysteries and a dash of cyberpunk with your fantasy. If high fantasy is more your style, then consider giving Season 1 a listen. You can listen to Trailblazers on this very feed. We've got a bunch of other ways to listen as well, so go to our site tblazer.net for a complete list of the ways that you can listen. So go ahead, grab some dice, and join us. Alright Christian, you come across an obviously important character to the plot, what do you do? I immediately shoot him in the face. Ugh, Christian. Now, Christian, let's get into some of our favorite beasts from this book. And the first one I want to talk about is the Basilisk. This squat reptilian monster has eight legs, bony spurs jutting from its back, and eyes that glow with pale green fire. Basilisks are cool. These guys, I love the idea that have like the eight-legged thing. That's really cool to me. Like said, a pizza really super gross. And the idea of a lizard makes it a lot cooler and less gross. But these dudes are just like CR5, you think, oh, I can handle it. But oh, wait, it has a gaze attack that turns people to stone. That usually is sort of a uh, bad move for your GM to do because it's like, oh, great. Like we were just ready to randomly at CR5. Every make sure we have something in case we're turned to stone. No one has that ready. But guess what? You're not a jerk, GM, because if anyone has any sort of knowledge check that can apply to this creature... Or you can either, you know, throw little hints in the encounter or in the area they're encountered. You can learn that with basilisks, you can fix the stone. You can turn the stone to flesh with the basilisk's fresh blood. And that means even if something's been turned to stone for 50 years, as long as it's fresh blood, you can turn that person back to normal. It's a really good way to introduce turning to stone at a lower level with a built-in way to overcome it. Okay, so that's good because typically... When you get turned to stone, you need something that gives you the effect of the stone to flesh spell. 
because magic is the only thing that fixes magic. But when you get stone to fleshed to get fixed, you have to make a DC fortitude save or you still die. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, I've never used that. That's lame. Yeah, it is lame. I was. I never, there's a lot of stuff in Pathfinder that's like, have the spell that says fix this because there's one spell that says fix this or you're gone forever. Um, this is a really neat way of giving it a powerful ability that says that without that dumb drawback of, well, I just have to carry one potion of every counter effect on me at all mm-hmm, times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've used this in my campaign where it's sort of, they, my players did not have any sort of knowledge check that did apply to figure it out. And uh, I left different clues around the room for them to figure it out. They didn't even need them. They just randomly said, let's try this. And I was like, okay, there we go. We got it. And then, of course, since they have enough to to restore uh, three creatures. Well, it's one D3, but I just made it three. Uh, creatures back to life. There was somebody who had been turned to stone for a long time. That was just sort of there because I wanted to show that it was happening. It's kind of the reason you put statues in Medusa's encounter room. So they used it on him, and I'm like, oh, great. Now I've got to come up with a backstory for this guy. And it was just an interesting, fun little thing. Basilisks are cool. And here's a really interesting. Weasels and ferrets have immunity to its gaze. And that's it. Just those two things. Go figure. I like to imagine that your players just were always rubbing the blood of their victims on themselves, and this time it just happened to do something. (laughs) Look, the ferret's bathing in it. Let's do that, too. (laughs) One of my favorite lower CR creatures, one we actually talked about a little bit earlier, is the Lantern Archon. It's only a CR2 a Lantern Archon's like this little metal contraption filled with holy light. It's a lawful good creature, and it's so cute. I love it. Um, it's just a great representation, I think, of something from the Outer Realm, but it doesn't have to be like this angel, deific-looking thing. It's just this small, good contraption that can just follow you around and help you. It doesn't do anything particularly powerful, but it shoots out little light lasers at people. Uh, it has DR against evil. It at will can cast, like, Continual Flame, uh, the Aid Spell. The coolest thing about them is that if you have a bunch of them, if you get nine Lantern Archons, they Voltron. They they fuse together and become the equivalent (laughs) of a large air elemental with a bunch of their light-shooting abilities. I've used them very sparingly. I did use them once in a pre-made. In one of the modules, the Harrowing, which I highly suggest, one of my favorite modules Paizo's ever published, there is an enemy who is a very devout paladin who I was like, hmm, I have a couple players. This one guy is probably going to be pretty easy to beat. So I just gave him two companion lantern archons that, you know, would cast the helpful spells on him, like aid and stuff. So it just gave the player something else to target. And I also just had them talk like weather forecasters for some reason. Like, oh man, he smited evil on them. Go over to you, Jim. <laughs> nice. Speaking of things that we sort of talked about, I want to talk about one, a golem that I think is really interesting, and that's the clay golem. It's a CR-10 creature. This lumbering figure is sculpted from soft clay. It wears filthy rags and cruel jewelry, and its face is only vaguely humanoid. It's got, like, these manacles, sort of like a, a genie, and it's a loincloth. It's got, like, a jackal head, and it's a very muscular-looking guy. And this guy, to me, is super cool. I've used him in one of my favorite encounters. And what's really cool about them is that his, heal- his damage pretty much can't be healed. If he damages you, he applies something called Curse Wounds, which pretty much means you don't get to heal naturally, and any magical healing is resisted. You have to make a DC 26 caster level check 
or your healing doesn't work. And that's the only way to heal damage from these guys. That is really cool. That's a great way to sort of soften up your players before later encounters, making the dungeon harder and harder as it goes on. These dudes are five feet tall, but they're 600 pounds. Dude, I thought I was overweight. <laughs> I always picture them bigger. They are a large construct. I don't know why they just say five feet tall. I picture bigger, but I get it. Whatever. Another interesting acid heals it. Okay, you're gonna melt the you're gonna melt the clay. And you're gonna fill in all the little holes you made in it. Sorry, bro. But what's something really interesting about this guy is that he has a one percent chance each round to go berserk. And once he goes berserk, there is no way to retake control and he just attacks anything that's near him and if there's not a creature in his line of sight okay well then he just attacks the nearest object starts breaking it just starts smashing everything he just won't stop till you kill him uh there's no way to reestablish control when we talked about these things are mindless you use them you usually magicians make them for a certain purpose doesn't matter anymore this thing's just going crazy uh at, at the end of an encounter the percentage chance goes back down to zero unless it's reached you know unless you've actually hit the chance where it goes berserk then you're done Coming across one that's already raging would be pretty interesting. Hmm. What happened to this temple? It's just this dude standing in rubble. Really upset about everything. A creature I find interesting, just because it does something I didn't expect it, is a cyclops. A cyclops, for the most part, are what you expect. There's these, these kind of giant, or at least large creatures. Uh, they got one big eye. They kind of have this brutish appearance because they carry like a club and they just kind of smack things. They're not particularly dumb, but they're not super smart. They're kind of like normal across the board, except they have a slight bonus to wisdom. Um, but what I find really interesting is their one ability. They only really have one spell-like ability, or excuse me, there's a supernatural ability called Flash of Insight. Once per day, as an immediate action, a Cyclops can peer into an occluded visual spectrum of possible futures, gaining insight that allows it to select the exact result of one die roll before the roll is made. Uh, this can only affect things that the Cyclops rolls on other people. And I just think like that's something interesting. You have this big, brutish creature, but, you know, just because of its nature, because of however it was created or whatever divine influence it has, it can once per day do this incredibly powerful ability. It's kind of a weird ability because I think every time you're gonna, it's going to select to roll a 20. Yeah. It's gonna <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't think of any reason why it wouldn't, but, like, it gives you a reason to fear them. But as an ally, it gives them something really interesting that once per day they can do this. It's like, hey, man, help me out here. Like, I need this. Hmm. And choosing to succeed is really interesting. If you ever had an instance where they chose to fail, that would be even more interesting. There's, yeah. your, cha there's your challenge. Come up with a storyline for a Cyclops chooses to fail with this ability. As much as I think Cyclops look dumb, the art does do a good job. Kind of puts them in armor, makes them look, you know, presentable. Like they actually could be part of society. But on the very next page of that, Christian, is the Dark Creeper. And the page after that, the Dark Stalker, CR 2 and 4 respectively. Filthy, reeking black rags wrap the small humanoid from head to toe, leaving only its hands and pale white nose visible. And the other one, the tall, this tall humanoid's pale brow and black soulless eyes are all that can be seen above a black scarf wrapped around its face. These guys are really cool, really pale-looking dudes that just wrap themselves in layers and layers of cloth. And the cool sort of, you know, lore about them is that they don't change clothes. When they think it's too dirty or they just it's too destroyed, they just put on another layer and they just keep on going and going and going. So they're actually pretty thin underneath what makes them look bulky. But these guys live underground. 
They're called Caligni. That's their race name, uh, which I looked up is Italian for soot or smog, by the way. And they are to humans what drows are to elves. We saw this with, you know, dwarves and Durgar, the gnomes and the, uh, what was for the gnomes? Svivnelflin. Svivnelflin. I guess. Svivnelflin. Can't believe I remember it due to a commercial <laughs> in the 90s. But these guys, aside from the sort of kind of, I think, with the really cool visual, that story about like their clothes and all that, and the fact that like they sort of you know work together being two different types of the same people. What is common to the Caligny, to the dark people, uh, which does sound racist, I'm glad we now have a word like Caligny instead of calling them the dark people, is they have death throes. Where they each do something a little bit different, but sort of similarly themed when they die. So, for example, the Dark Creeper. When a Dark Creeper is slain, its body combusts in a flash of bright white light, leaving its gear in a heap on the ground. All creatures within a 10-foot burst must make a save or be blinded for 1d6 rounds. When a Dark Stalker is slain, its body combusts in a flash of white-hot flame. This acts like a fireball, a Dark Stalker's gear and treasure unaffected by this explosion. I really like the idea of them exploding and leaving no trace of their body behind. But hey, look, there's all their stuff just left in the pile. That's kind of cool. Makes you makes you think about how are you going to kill them. You need to have some strategy. I like I like encounters that have strategy to it. I can just throw a bunch of orcs at you, I guess, and we'll have fun. But it's really cool when like you do this, one explodes, and you go, okay, guys, hey, future reference, we need to these guys explode when they die. We need to work around this. Gives good opportunity for some strategy. I always look for the new one in each bestiary. I like to see the different death throws. The other thing they can do is they can cast darkness and they can see in it perfectly. And it's an at-will spell. That's something I'm not crazy about. Um, It makes them really binary. Uh, Their death throws are definitely a non-binary ability. That's really interesting. But it's really have people with dark vision or have a wizard that can cast light or some higher level light spell. Or these guys are going to wreck you. Um, and there's not much you can do about it just because of the way the spell darkness is worded. You can't use mundane light to overcome it, so your torch doesn't do anything. And I just don't, I don't like needing to have wizards to solve all my problems. Mm. I think uh, deeper darkness, which is the stalker can cast, is a little more problematic than just darkness that the creeper can cast. But um, I think there's always ways like, okay, well then we don't fight it here. Let's go into an area where it's not bright. This thing is is obviously trying to put us into the trap. It's the same reason you try not to fight the the red dragon in the volcano or the water dragon in, in the lake. You try to find a, don't let it have the advantage. Uh, the fact that it's at will though is what makes it, well, it's just going to cast it again in the new area, I suppose. I guess got to deal with that then. I guess that's a good point now that I think about that. Yeah, give it a cooldown or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? That's a good point. But darkness isn't so bad. The regular spell darkness just brings the light level down one step, right? It's deeper darkness that makes it bad. I'm not sure about that, though. We can look that up. But I understand. It's a, it's a legit point. And you can always just, like we were saying earlier, do what you want. If you don't like that, then don't make them cast it. My next choice of my favorite creature from the species, Jerry, is what I affectionately call the Brain Boy. Um, the <laughs> Intellect Devourer is a CR8 creature. It's a small aberration. It is actually just... A tiny little brain and four little clawed legs coming out of it. Um, they're very strange creatures as aberrants. They have a lot of weird resistances. Uh, they have a couple spell-like abilities that involve messing with your mind. They can confuse you. Um, they can daze you. Things like that. But what is super cool about Brain Boys is that as a full-round action... calling them that! As a full-round action, they can steal a dead person's body. Uh, a helpless or dead creature... They can burrow into their skull and 
devour their brain and become their brain. Um, they basically dominate that body from that point out. They are now living in this new body. And the lore behind them is that, like, they sometimes there's, like, these underground societies of these brain boys that go out and steal bodies. And it's, like, a fashion thing. Like, check out this cool body I stealed. Let's go have, like, weird orgies because we don't – these aren't our bodies. We can do whatever we want. Like, we can indulge in whatever weird stuff we want to do. And I just think that's a really interesting idea, this entire society of people with stolen bodies that don't have to care about them, and then they can go out and steal more. Maybe that's a little hook for your players to go down there. They stole some people they know. I think they're creepy and gross and look terrible, and I dislike them, and I dislike the fact that you call them brain boys. You love the brain boys, Caleb. Uh, And they have a plus 19 perception. I'm going to need you to stop real quick, Christian, just right quick. I'm going to need you to stop calling them that. Uh, What, BBs? All right, well, let's the Devourer. This is CR-11 creature. This dry, hovering corpse's chest is a prison of jagged ribs, within which is trapped a small, tormented, ghostly form. This is a ten-foot-tall guy that decides to be even taller by hovering all the time. This guy is a really sort of cool-looking dude, and the big thing about him is he's got an ability called Devour Soul, which is essentially the Slay Living spell that, if you fail your save, will do 12d6 plus 8 points of damage. So, you know, hey, make sure you save. Your, make sure you save. Oh, but what's that? On a successful save, 3d6 plus 18. You're still going to get hurt. It, it traps the soul. Once it successfully traps the soul on its body, it can use the trapped soul to fuel its spells. It has all these spell-like abilities that are all at will, but he can only cast them by devouring the soul that's in his body that he has trapped. So he's slowly taking away from your essence to cast these spells. I used this once. He was really good to target an animal companion, which is kind of weird because you think of soul, you think of a person. But he was great because he could be like, that thing is a terrible beastie that would be a great slave for my master. I'll trap it. We'll make it into an undead creature. And I could show how dangerous it was by doing 12 6 points of 8 plus 8 points of damage to the sort of beefy, you know, animal companion. And it wouldn't matter if it did end up dying and then fueled its spells. Um, and the spells can be bad. He's got everything from uh, caster level. Let's see. Everything from fourth level spells. Most of them. A few lower ones, but... Uh, animate dead confusion uh, inflict serious wounds planar ally raven fielment all sorts of powerful spells in here uh, true seeing but I think it's a really cool mechanic to be able to sort of like oh I have all these spells I can't cast them until I have this soul and I sort of use that that's kind of neat to me so we go from intellect devourers the brain boys to the devourer the soul boys see how well that would have been if you called it an intellect devourer I did. I said it was called, and you didn't remember. No, I know you called it, Christian, but it's completely erased by every time you use Brain Boy. Now no, you've got me saying it! <laughs> Ooh, they have telepathy 100 feet. That's interesting. Their attacks do energy drain. They're just really... These guys are tough. These guys are, oh no, if this isn't a battle, let's maybe focus this thing first. They've got other things like spell deflection and stuff, but this is just a cool thing. Yeah, the spell deflection is actually insane. If you successfully get by its spell resistance and you cast certain spells at it, it just goes back at the person that cast it. See, like, you have to be really careful of these things. I think they're really cool. And even the idea of one of your party members or an NPC being trapped inside one of these things, you need to get them out before their whole essence is drained, is really cool. Yeah, and let me correct you real quick. It doesn't go back to the caster. It goes to one of the souls it's captured. Oh, I didn't read it. See, I should read things more often. It turns it on to them. 
and it's a certain list of spells that do it. And uh, but you can you can like you were saying, trying to get it out is important, and using this can try to help get the soul out of the person's thing before he devours it, as it were. But what do you got next for us, Christian? I have chosen the shadow as my uh, Yu-Gi-Oh card creature in attack form. <laughs> A uh, shadow and shadow greater. Um, this comes with a caveat that I don't use their mechanics as represented. A uh, shadow is an incorporeal creature. It's basically a ghost. It's a vaguely humanoid shape. It's this ethereal creature. It touches people. It hurts them. Um, what I really like about them is that you can do anything with that. I have used shadows to represent so many different things. And although mechanically they act the same, uh, visually and story-wise, they all act very differently. By default, the way they work is that they deal strength damage, and they deal when they touch you, they deal 1d6 strength damage, which they're only a CR3 creature, and that's absolutely could be absolutely crippling, which I don't like how polarized it is, where it rolls a 1, and it's like, okay, well, I'm good for the rest of the day, versus if it rolls a 6, please help me, I'm dying, I can't do anything, and I'm crippled. <laughs> In for like the next five days uh the greater shadow is just a relatively stronger version of it, it does mostly the same thing if someone dies uh from the strength damage uh they come back at or they basically die and then become a shadow themselves so they could basically replicate in this manner but you know you can use this to represent ghosts because they're incorporeal at a low level they're kind of tough but as you get to sort of five and six and above they become more manageable right yeah, they so they're incorporeal, so if you try to hit them without a magical weapon, it doesn't do anything. If you hit them with a magical weapon, it deals half damage. So typically, if you're going to throw one of these in at low levels, make sure you've given your players some sort of access to magic, like give them an oil of magic weapon. I don't know, someone just dropped a ghost touch weapon off the back of a cart. Don't be creative <laughs> with it, just give it to them. Um, and then they could still be effective later, you know, to slightly higher level PCs because they really only take half damage unless you have Ghost Touch. So they'll still live for an attack or two, get off a few bad touchies, and then spook everyone. I do like the fact that they're creative in the fact that, oh, I don't do any sort of a hit point damage. I kill you a very different way with strength damage. But aside from that, I'm just actually surprised you picked them. I thought they were very uninteresting and very one note. I've recently used them. I revamped their damage to do sanity damage. Oh, cool. Where they're, they're kind of like from a different dimension. And when they, they touch you, they're kind of like partially dragging you into that dimension. So you take sanity damage. Once you take enough sanity damage, you're basically in that dimension now. Or that is why you're becoming insane. Like you're partially in this dimension, partially in that dimension. I like the idea of a creature following you around that you can't see this, that you're just taking for granted because you always see shadows driving you insane. <laughs> when you're flipping through this book, when you get to the giants we're talking about, the next thing you, in the next page when you're done with the giants, you're going to see this horrid mass of eyes, mouths, and formless flesh that stares in all directions. It's countless maws looking like they're yammering ceaselessly. What you're looking at is a gibbering mouther. And this thing is CR5, but guess what? It is not CR5. The reason I say it's not CR5 is because of its stats. It has six bites that each do 1d4 points of damage, which is fine plus grab with each. With six bites, I think you have a chance that it's probably going to end up grappling you. Well, when it grapples you, it's it can do attacks and drain con with each of its attacks. Hey, real quick, just to remind you, six bites. And then on its next round, it can engulf you, which isn't super fun. 
At least not if you're the one getting engulfed. I bet the engulfer has some level of fun. Beyond that, beyond just that, that would make it sort of a normal creature. It has different abilities, like gibbering, which confuses everyone who fails. And oh wait, everyone who here has to make a save. It targets the entire party. And oh wait, that's a free action. It's got spittle, which is a ranged touch attack that spits acidic spittle, which blinds people for 1d4 points around. And oh wait, that's a free action. The only saving grace here is that if you do save the gibbering, you'd have to wait 24 hours to be affected by it again. But there is no such limit if you fail it. So you can fail it again and again and again and again and again. It's it's very tough because you're telling each round, not only is it doing it six bites if it gets a full round attack off, it's get a spittle, a confusion thing that hits every single person. I feel like it should be more than a CR5. But it is really good to be sort of the one versus two or two versus three or four sort of boss thing because it has so many different things it can do. It, as written, rules as written, can be a good sort of boss. I've always been of the opinion that some enemies should break the rules uh, for them to be challenging, for them to be frightening. And this thing feels like it breaks the rules. It has like three free action abilities that are all pretty crippling if they succeed on you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, re- I really enjoy sort of eldritch things eldritch lovecraftian if you know what that means it's cthulhu like things that might be the best entry level to somebody who who doesn't know about it uh and this is definitely an eldritch and not only inspired creature i think it was uh straight from lovecraft lore or eldritch lore uh so it's very interesting i love it i love it i think it's a a cool thing definitely if you have some sort of a crazy uh, insanity campaign really a great one to use you can just throw your players up for a loop and they see all these maws and tongues and eyes and this amorphous flesh. The next creature I selected is the Harpy. Um, I selected the Harpy not because of any of its particular abilities. It does everything you would expect it to do, which is like this flying monstrous humanoid that sings a song and can ca- captivate you with its song. So 100% what do you expect a Harpy to be? Um, I selected it because every time I've seen it represented in one of the APs, it's been a pretty interesting representation of them. A lot of times they're not particularly angry or at oppose or at opposition with the party. They're a lot of times they're like hired by baddies who just say, hey, you know what? Just stay here. I will pay you to like live here. I just want you to keep singing because you can do this whenever you want. I just want you to keep singing so that people can't just approach me and attack me. A lot hmm. of times they're like these neutral parties that are just hired, and they just sit there and sing, and that's what they like to do. And if it so happens that they captivate someone, then, oh well. Although I think lore-wise, they're actually supposed to be pretty mean. I think they like eating people. Yeah, I was gonna say, I always thought of them sort of like as almost wild animals. Like, don't go to a harpy nest. I never really thought of them. But, you know, like you said, heck with any of that. If you want to use an NPC, go right ahead. That's awesome. And the book makes these harpies actually look cool. And what's that? They're wearing clothes. That's the first time I saw a harpy do that in any sort of media. I want to talk about the Hellhound. This creature resembles a thin, lanky wolf with reddish-brown fur, white claws, and burning, fiery red eyes. I actually like the art interpretation that kind of veers off from that description a little bit. It's sort of like a skeleton on fire. Uh, Maybe like a little bit of sort of skin and bones look. But I just love the look of these guys. These guys are so cool. You'll know if you listen to any of my campaigns how much I love them because I use them in 
every single one of them. Uh, the four to five feet tall and 120 pounds. To think of a freaking on fire dog skeleton coming at me that's just a that's a, just a foot taller sh- shorter than I am is very frightening. I imagine that would be a very I mean I'd be scared enough if it was an animal that wasn't on fire in a skeleton that was that big coming at me. Uh, I think they're really really cool. There's a cool little bit in there uh, they're right up here that says efficient hunters a favorite pack tactic is to surround prey quietly then attack with one or two hounds driving prey towards the rest of the pack with their fiery breath. If the prey doesn't run the pack closes in. Hellhounds track fleeing creatures relentlessly. Hellhounds are particularly favored by fire giants as the creatures are immune to fire and share the fire giant's sense of cruelty when it comes to handling intruders. Only when a fire giant goes too far towards treating a relatively intelligent hound like a pet do such alliances begin to falter. I mean, they'll have like intelligence scores of 20 here, but they're, 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 they're kind of like they have the idea of, you know, dogs can be smart. And there's a, a, a better version, sort of like the dire version of them. They call it the Nessian. And Nessians are CR9s. Nessian warhounds are tireless and relentless trackers pursuing enemies of Asmodeus to the far corners of hell and beyond. Once Asmodeus sets them to a task, they do not quit until either the task is complete or they are dead. There are fearsome, snarling horrors in combat. If the hounds of hell are on your trail, pray to God, because there's no other way to stop them. That fits that so well. I love the idea. They did so well, at least in the lore here, to be like, that, to keep that phrase, the hounds of hell, on your trail, to be something that is truly frightening. And maybe I like that more because my name, Caleb, means dog. My whole life I've hated that. My brother teased me with that. You know, whatever. You get over being teased. Until, like, there was a turning point in my life. I thought of sort of like the hound of heaven on your tail. That was a phrase. I forget who said it. I think it was, maybe it was Calvin when he was saying about how he became saved, how he came to Christ, how the hounds of heaven were on his trail. I can't quite remember how, what, where that phrase came from. I thought, oh, cool. Okay, I don't mind being a hound of heaven. That's kind of cool. And this sort of the hound of hell idea. I don't know. I just really like it. They have a cool breath weapon, which is sort of like you're not dealing with as much damage as a dragon per se, but it's still frightening, especially with the hellhound Nessian. And uh, I always added burn to them. Burn is the sort of thing where you're on fire. You have to put it out. Otherwise, you take constant damage. Sort of like bleed sort of thing. Uh, they don't have that rules as written, but I think it makes total sense to me that you add that to these fiery dog skeleton monsters. Uh, one of my favorite creatures, even though no real special abilities, and they're relatively simple, but I do love them just for their look and lore. Oh, well, thankfully they weren't hell felines. I can only imagine <laughs> how many more notes you would have on them. Well, Christian, let's wait till further bestiaries. Hmm? Hmm, a little tease. Hmm? Wait, do they? Yes, there are hellcats. I don't know which bestiary. Stay tuned oh, to find out. Hellcat, they hide in plain sight and bright light. Let's not talk about those. <laughs> Uh, my next creature I chose is the Dryad. Strange, beautiful woman has flesh that seems to be made of wood and vibrant hair that resembles leaves and vo- uh, blossoms. The fray creatures, they're tree people. I like Dryads because they tell a story. They have some interesting mechanics. They're pretty basic. They're humanoids. Uh, they can fight like normal. They have a couple spell-like abilities involving plants and plant life. Uh, some charming abilities because they are from the fae. Uh, but they have some special abilities that t- they really tell a story. A dryad is mystically bonded to a single, enormous tree and must never stray more than 300 yards from it. Most dryad trees are oak trees, but other trees function as well. 
a dryad who moves 300 yards beyond her bonded tree immediately becomes sickened. Every hour thereafter, she must make a DC 15 fortitude save to resist becoming nauseated for an hour. A dryad that is out of range of her bonded tree for 24 hours takes 1d6 points of constitution damage and another 1d6 points of constitution damage every day that follows. Eventually, the separation kills a dryad. A dryad can forge a new bond with a new tree by performing a 24-hour ritual and making a successful DC 20 will save. That is just ripe for telling stories. There's so much you can do with that. I've definitely used it in my campaign. I had a whole world of fey. And guess what? These guys were absolutely featured. Like just finding a, a group of these dryads that they all used to be from a different tree, but something happened, drove them away from that tree. That tree dr- died. They had an exodus to this new tree, you know, and Oni, what? What's their will save? A plus seven? Only like half of the population was able to complete the ritual and bond to this new tree. That It could be a really interesting story. I, I sort of had it where um, if their tree died, they died. I didn't really allow them to get a new tree. And uh, I sort of used this to sort of make one of my villains seem to more menacing my, my players uh, I was talking to this dryad who was sort of like interested in them, and so they kind of took advantage of that. And said, "All right, well, we have this guy that's that's that we cannot find, who is a threat and is trying to find us or is threatening us in ways." And uh, actually, I think he knows where we are. What makes it even scarier is he hasn't hit us yet. So, can you find him since you can speak with trees and things like that for us? And she said, "Sure, fine." And so in the middle of the night later on, they get woken up and she's wilting away and she described to him how I found him and I was hiding. He didn't know I was there. He was just taking, he ended up walking and taking a stroll into the woods. And then I realized I knew where we were in the woods, but it was too late. He pulled an ax and he chopped down my tree before I could stop him. He knew I was following him and didn't let me know and then knew exactly where my tree was and killed me. And that, like, made him even more menacing to my players that he had played that so cool, knew what was happening, and dealt with it swiftly. Sort of like the at the last minute looking at the party like, really? This is what you're going to try to do to me? You have no hope against me. It was a it was a sort of a a good way to make a a villain scary without having him coming and killing the party. Look how strong I am. Kind of that the scary of intelligence. Let's talk about the chitin. The chitin is a CR six creature. Wickedly barbed chains adorn the slain figure, and gaps in the bindings reveal deathly pale flesh etched with jagged scars. The art does a great job here on the scars. They don't make them look sort of like ridiculous and open and disgusting they like these just nice sw- little lines they i think they do a very very good job sort of like is that what well, there's like red marks on her is that is that a little, like stained with blood hmm, i don't know interesting uh she's sort of the the cenobite from hellraiser if you ever seen that movie that that a cult classic and, and long series uh pinhead is from him if, if you don't know what i'm talking about that'll probably cue you in most people know who pinhead is at least by looking at him uh, they sort of, they love pain, they love the idea of torture, and, uh, they have this ability that makes them look like one of your loved ones in a, a, with a torturous, pained face, which is a, I think is a cool way to sort of, you know, in the middle of combat, sort of draw, kind of throw someone off kilter. I think it's, you have to be careful about that. If, like, in the middle of battle, I'm fighting this thing, and then all of a sudden it looks like my wife being pained, I'm like, I know you're not her, I just saw you transform, lady. Okay, I'm not, nice trick! 
I think you'd probably be a little smarter than that, have it happen before maybe the encounter or whatever. Uh, be, be cool with that. But other side from that, I think it, it's very interesting. And she can control change. She has these, she's covering changes she uses to attack you. And in a certain area around her, she can control chains, make them like dancing chains, extend their length, even if the chain's in another person's hand. If you're using a chain weapon, she's like, oh, that works for me now, honey. Very interesting. Uh, I'm glad they took that sort of Cenobite uh, look uh, and, and feel and put it into some stats. I used her once in a torture chamber. Obviously, very what you would think she would be in. I thought she was going to be a drive through receptionist. <laughs> Handing <laughs> me my fries with her long chains. <laughs> Listen, you can do a lot with that. It's not only for, for combat people. Think outside the box. The Chitons have a really interesting philosophy. If you ever get the chance to read it, like, basically... They're not just like, I super duper love torture. They do because they think it makes them stronger, though. Not because it's like, wow, I love pain. It's like, look at the pain that I can resist. I've become a stronger being because of this. And I might have just made that up now that I think about it. That could be completely wrong, but I think that's it. <laughs> Something that's cool about chitons, though, is that uh, people think that they're devils. They'll call them chain devils, but they're not actual devils. They're their own sort of race. Um, and they actually end up giving you different types of chitons, kind of like with the Dark Creeper and the Dark Stalker, end up giving you more expanded for the bestiaries. I can't wait to sort of look at them with you. But Christian, on the, the page right before this one, there's this really cool-looking sea creature. Is that the tuna? No, it's the Kraken! That you must release, often, in various ways. Release the Kraken! Yes, I have, I have selected the Kraken. Kind of this iconic, scary, underwater beast that everyone knows about. I just think it's a really good representation. It's a CR-18 creature. Wow. It's a gargantuan-sized creature. It's actually just a magical beast, so it's not from, like, the Dark Depths or the Cosmic Outer Realms. It's actually just a giant, magical leviathan under the sea. It loves crushing ships. It has the ability to rend ship. I just think it's cool that that's just, like, a thing they can do. Um... <laughs> It does a lot of stuff you would expect it to. It can shoot ink. It can destroy stuff with its tentacles. It can break ships. It can move really, really fast. They're really scary. If you're in a boat, it's probably going to murder you. Uh, but what I think is really interesting and that kind of like twisted the idea of the Kraken is the fact that it's actually very, very intelligent. It has 20s in all its mental stats. So this isn't like a dumb sea creature. This is a plotting, conniving mastermind really with all that mental power going on and it actually has a couple spell-like abilities i think are really interesting in that you can scare your players with the idea of the kraken without actually attacking them with the kraken if the kraken is just nearby it can do something like control the weather control the winds it can manipulate the weather once a day actually it's not at will it's once a day but it can just change it to be storming or something um, it can also dominate other sea monsters. It has dominate monster as a spell-like ability. So you can have a Kraken opposed to the party, but use its proxies through the weather and the monsters that it dominates to attack the party because your party's probably not dumb enough to go out into the middle of the ocean on a ship to get destroyed by it. Mm -hmm. So that way you can have like this, this rivalry with this CR-18 creature without actually having to fight it. And, you know, goodness help you if you're in the ocean without any sort of means of transportation. It has, like, this jet ability, which means I'm just going to go backwards 280 feet. Good luck me catching up with me. I'm going to not harass you from afar. Sharks, go get him. <laughs> this thing definitely, if you want to, the master of the sea, it sure is. It sure represents that well. 
And you know, there's a lot of different art, art inter- interpretations of the Kraken. We've seen it in like great movies like um, Pirates of the Caribbean. You see this cool thing. You've seen it sort of looking like more a little more humanoid in um, Clash of the Titans. Uh, he looked really, really cool. Uh, and this one, I think, also does a good job of showing a different art. Sort of has a sort of octopus slash squid look, but it does a really good job with the art. It doesn't make it look. Oh, it's just a it's a it's a big octopus. Okay, cool. They do a really good job making it again distinguished and different. But you know, in, in the in the ancient tale of the kraken, do you remember how it was defeated? Nope. Uh, no, no, no. It was defeated by the one way that could possibly defeat a giant, intelligent, super creature like that. It was churned to stone by the head of Medusa. Medusa's my next one. This slender, attractive woman has strangely glowing eyes and a full head of hissing snakes for hair. She is CR7, and she is uh, sort of weird in her design, since she's essentially a justification for a PC playing her. In her description, it says things like, Used to concealing themselves, Medusas in cities are usually rogues, while those in wilderness often pass themselves off as rangers or trackers. The most notorious and legendary Medusas, though, are those who take levels as bards or clerics. Charismatic and intelligent urban Medusas are often involved with thieves' guild or other aspects of the criminal underworld. Spellcasting Medusas often serve as oracles. Hey, bro, um, I would never let my player play a Medusa. Thanks, though. Um, because they can just look at creatures and end an encounter because that thing's stone now. I don't know why they were doing that. I they were, I can see they were trying to give you like reasons to put them in your story, but that really seems like PC justification there, bro. But aside from that, I think they're really cool. It sort of talks about them being prophets and a good example of uh, sort of the beastiary trying to help you craft a story. You know, you go to them and you try to earn their favor, kind of talk about with the genies with the wish, and but you know you're going there as a very real chance you can turn to you can be turned to so and you know about it because she makes it very aware because she's decorating the place and these stone statues that you know were not crafted out of stone but out of people uh i think it'd probably be a good basic fun boss great for a boss room she can kind of sort of lead you into traps with her bow sort of have it littered with statues and things kind of leading you into different traps and she she's memorized the sort of you know labyrinth like route and she, of course, has the turn to stone ability. And this is an example of me looking at the bestiary for stats of a monster already created by culture that I wanted to introduce in my campaign, but didn't want to create stats for. Oh, Medusa, here you go. Basic stats. Cool. Got it. Done. I don't need her to be something to have her own identity or whatever. I'm happy with the identity culture's given her. And the art does, again, a good job. I like that description of them as how they are integrated in society because it successfully dispelled the only image I have in my head of Medusa of a woman in, like, Greek robes Mm -hmm. in a grand epic story. Um, The idea that they can just be a person in a town I think is really interesting. And, like, they they, because it's that iconic figure, like, they had to do something to break Mm -hmm. away from that because you don't want to be just, like, shoehorned into that being the only representation. I think that description did a really good job. I mean, it just did it for me because I was like... Why did Caleb pick Medusa? That's so boring. And now, <laughs> now the idea of interacting with a Medusa on like a normal day-to-day basis is a really interesting concept to me. It should be cool if just like a friend of the party. Oh, yeah, this is Cher. <laughs> did you really name her Cher? I, this is the first <laughs> I came to mind. I don't know, bro. <laughs> uh, well, wish I could talk in, about these guys right after the Kraken. Uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong because I don't know how. It's Sahugan. I think it's a Hoogan. This scaly humanoid has a long fish-like tail. Its arms and legs end in webbed claws, and its piscine head features a toothy maw. Uh, it's only a CR2 creature. 
I'm not going to read any of these stats. I'm going to go all the way down to the very bottom of their stat block to the only thing I care about, special <laughs> abilities. What do they have? They have Blood Frenzy. Okay. And they have Speak with Sharks. <laughs> a Sahuge can communicate telepathically with sharks to a distance of 120 feet. This communication is limited to simple concepts such as come here, defend me, or attack this target. I didn't know this thing existed. I need to shoehorn it into some campaign. I need to have Sharknado. <laughs> I'm just glad that it said simple commands because how boring would it be? Hey, how you doing, uh, Bob? I'm hungry. That's great. That, that's what you said yesterday. <laughs> I, don't, I think if you're in a Sharknado campaign, do you need to direct the, the sharks? I feel like the, the NATO is the part that directs the sharks. I mean, you have the, the Sharknado... You know, it strews sharks about the city. So now you can have sharks on the ground. It's like, roll over here. Bite these people. <laughs> roll over here. <laughs> I like the idea now of just, like, throwing them down paths to make the first level of Donkey Kong, where everybody has to jump over the rolling sharks. <laughs> yeah, they work very well in a lighthearted campaign, as you can tell. Well, I want to talk about a sort of classic creature. It's a CR4, and it's the Mimic. What appeared to be a chest filled with treasure comes to life as it grows long, glistening tentacles and a number of sharp teeth. The Mimic here, at first got to give a, a huge shout out to the art. I think one of the best depictions of Mimic. It's super cool. It looks like a, a chest, but just a jagged, terrible maw with this creepy tongue and sort of like tentacles made of wood from the box coming out of the bottom and gold coins flying everywhere. It's really, really cool looking. Mimics are neat. Throw in your campaign as anything, uh, not just chess. Chess just the tradition. They got a couple cool things. One, obviously the mimic thing where they can look like any object. Uh, the other cool thing is adhesive. So when you strike a, uh, a mimic, it has this sort of layer of goo, as it were, of adhesive that tries to grab on and it becomes very difficult to get your weapon away from you to make a save otherwise your weapon's stuck to it and once stuck to it to make a different save to try to yank it off of it, it it's got built-in mechanics that so once you kill it in like a minute the adhesive dissolves but you can be like i don't know how to kill it now that it has my axe i would like to find a different way please we need to do something and it's not just like only metal weapons it's if it, if it can come out of your hands it's gonna but my favorite way to use this is to use them as fake doors especially in like a maze or something we finally found the exit so they're not thinking about mimics anymore they grab it and then the door falls on them and tries to eat them you can do the piano from super mario 64 that scared every child that ever played that game there's also of course the classic chest classic classic always a classic it's always a classic always a classic um <laughs> but there's a, a fun little line in here mimics are thought to be the result of an alchemist's attempt to grant life to an inanimate object through the application of an eldritch reagent cool glad you tied this to cthulhu the recipe for which is long lost. Over time, these strange but clever creatures have learned the ability to transform themselves into simulacra simulacrum of man-made objects, particularly in locations that have infrequent traffic by small numbers of creatures, thus increasing their odds of successfully attacking their victims. Some sages believe that mimics attack humans and other intelligent creatures for sport, rather for merely the sustenance. Legends and tales speak of mimics of much greater sizes, with the ability to assume the form of houses, ships, or entire dungeon complexes that they festoon with treasure, both real and false, to lure unsuspecting food within. Uh, I really like the idea that they're just kind of like, oh, I do this for fun, I'm not really all that hungry. 
It's just kind of in my nature. But what I really like is I need to make a building or a dungeon that's a mimic. I've had this idea forever. It's inspired me to do that. I need to do it one day. That would be so much fun. I mean, I think the fun is just deciding what is the mimic going to be. Because you have all your classics, but like, what it, you can always fit it into the description of a room so it flows really nicely. Have your mimic be a credenza. Have have a mimic be like the light blinds on a window. Have it be like a tapestry. It could be any. It could have it be a dinner plate. Have a tiny mimic that's a dinner plate. Like it could be anything. <laughs> I like the idea. The room is only mimics, and when you've done killing everything, the room's empty. Like oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe if you could somehow tame a mimic, like a king has this entire throne room of mimics, and like it's why every every time I come in this room, he's got a everything looks different. How does he get all this cool stuff? I would like to see other versions of Mimics with different CRs and sizes. I mean, like you're saying, I can give them like the advanced template and stuff, but it's just a CR4. I would like to, to have a little bit more flexibility. Uh, and if if I, I would like to say, we look forward to other Beast Jerry's to find out. But I mean, we know up to Beast Jerry 6, and unfortunately they never do. But I, I, it'd be cool if we had that. Another monster is going to probably bring a visceral reaction to some people, but the Rust Monster. Uh, it's only a CR3 creature. This insectile monster has four legs, a strange propeller-shaped protrusion at the end of its tail, and two long feathery antenna. They're actually aberrations. They're not like constructs or anything. They're, they're aberrations. And their whole thing is that they eat metal. They can touch metal with their antennae and break it. And I think that the way they do it is pretty streamlined. Basically, if they succeed at a touch attack on a metal object, it rusts. So the first time they hit it, it gains the broken condition, meaning that, you know, if it's a weapon, it uh, it takes a minus two on attack and damage rolls, I think. If it's a magical item, it I think it doesn't function or it has less functions. And if they hit it a second time, then it is simply destroyed. Um, they're not very powerful. They're actually quite weak. And I think they're more interesting not as, like, a creature that goes one uh one to one toe for toe with your players but rather something that's like a kind of like a mob to throw into a larger scale combat when they're up against something more frightening and you want to make it you know the combat a little bit harder have a couple rust monsters come out and you know your players know they have to deal with them they're not super threatening because they're very weak but they might break their equipment so now they have to divert their attention to attack these things this is the classic oh i gave my player too much too powerful of a weapon uh i need to get rid of it uh, uh rust mo- the field of rust monsters I'll get that magic axe yet. <laughs> and I just think it's good that they do all that stuff without actually going through, like, the Sunder rules and damaging the object and so on and so forth. Sure. We've talked about our feelings on those before, that rule before. I talked about the Minotaur, CR4 creature with the body of a powerfully built man and the head of a snarling bull. This creature stomps its hooves as if preparing to charge. The Minotaur uh, can charge and gore you and has a great axe and all that stuff. It's sort of another like the, with the Medusa. Just I want to find stats for this thing that's already in culture. But I, I, the art is great. It's one of the coolest looking depictions of a Minotaur I've seen yet. And they've got sort of like interesting things where they took, they're from a certain mythology where they're in mazes, or one is in a maze. So they made these guys sort of, oh, they like to live in mazes, which can be a natural maze, like they live in a sewer system because that's sort of like a natural maze. Or, you know, man-made, or, or, or other ones designed to be a maze. But they never get lost in them. They have this sort of ability that they, no matter what, they'll never get lost in a maze. And even maze spells don't really affect them. And uh, what's really cool is on this art, their axe, their sort of great axe, has these little lines and that turn in 90 degree angles. It sort of looks like the map for a maze. 
that's a great little bit of flavor they threw in there. And uh, I think uh, the fact that, like, they're ancient, so that their origin is in question, they don't know whether or not this is, like, a curse because some god hated them or a blessing, that's really interesting. I like that. But essentially, the, no matter what, Minotaurs sort of hold a little bit of a, a grudge and hate humans for the fact that they are not Minotaurs. <laughs> but um, I like them. Very simple. I've always sort of liked that, the theme of a, of a Minotaur. I think they represented it well. Caleb's list is like eight times longer than mine, so he can keep going. I only got five more. I want to talk about the salamander. The salamander is just a little lizard. All right, next is the Shoggoth. No, the salamander is is far more than just a little lizard, Christian. I can't believe you would even say that. Sorry. You see our sixth creature? This snake-bodied humanoid hisses with anger. Spines of crackling flame dance along this creature's blackened, fiery red scales. I absolutely love this art. You need to look it up right now. Salamander Pathfinder. Type it into Google. Send it to the internet. Get the answer by tomorrow. <laughs> maybe it's the... Maybe, maybe Christian, maybe I found a pattern. Because this thing's got, like, defined arms. Maybe I just like muscles. We know we know my feelings about the four-armed Kasatha. Now what I like here, maybe... maybe I think maybe we just found something. Because I, I also liked the clay golem, which is muscular. Maybe, maybe we're finding something about Caleb. But, um... <laughs> Uh, we know I love snakes, uh, or, or do we, I guess, do you guys, you guys, I've mentioned a couple times, I have my special snake, my special boy, my special little boy, uh, I love snakes, I think they're super cool, and this guy's curse got like a snake, like, uh, you know, from the waist down is the snake tail, uh, but with you should probably explain the, the, the special boy a little bit more, because that's leaving me confused, and I know what you're talking about. No, he's my special boy, <laughs> you don't need any more context, he's my special boy. I can't have a special snake boy. You can, but it just may want different language to represent that you own a whatever snake. What kind of snake is he? He is a Mexican black king snake. And I say he's my special boy because he has neurological damage. And I have to take special care of him so he doesn't literally eat himself. He tries to Ouroboros. Cool. Wow. Yeah, I love him. He's great. I'm not, I'm not like philanthropic, though. I didn't adopt him when he was uh, had the damage. He, he got it later in life. Anyway. He lives 20 freaking years. I'm going to have him longer than uh, anything else in my life. Um, than my wife, I guess. But really cool about salamanders, if we can get back to them, Christian, is that they have uh, sort of this this heat thing about them where they generate uh, – actually, I'll just read. A salamander generates so much heat that its mere touch deals an additional 1d6 points of fire damage. A salamander's metallic weapons also conduct this heat. I guess that's really a cool one. It's whatever, but you know what? Whatever's going to attack me. I get a little bit of heat damage. Oh, what's this? It's got a tail slap, which can grab me and then constrict me. Um, I really don't want to touch this thing, and it's giving me the hug of a lifetime. You know how you get irritable when you're hot? These dudes get irritable when they're cold. I love that idea. Freaking why do we have to be in this freaking snow world? I hate it so much. Dude, relax. You're not normally like this. Yeah, well, I'm not normally in snow. All right, bro, relax. Okay, I'm sorry. They also got a little bit of lore that they're legendary blacksmiths, so they have to be somewhat intelligent people in the fiery plains of the world. Try to venture to them to get legendary weapons made. It's definitely a cool hook for your campaign. But the way they look, um, they call them CR6. That's a good CR for them because they can be very dangerous to combat. I've used them in one of my campaigns. Christian, I believe you understand. Uh, but they're very cool, and they look super awesome. You definitely got to look up they look, their looks. These guys definitely are special boys. You got your brain boy? I got my special boy. You talk about how much I love uh, the Eldritch mythos, the Lovecraftian mythos. Shoggoth 
is uh, a mainstay. He's CR 19. This immense mound of black slime thunders forward, eyes and mouths, and even stranger things forming in its heaving bulk. Great art for it. The uh, Whenever you get art for Eldritch things, it's great because they're not supposed to have art. Uh, they're supposed to be incomprehensible. Yeah, I've got this great picture that I totally comprehend. Uh, but it's pretty much the blob, the great blob that engulfs everything. I don't know if it's the best representation of the source material because I don't know the source material very well. But I'm glad it's there and it certainly has very dangerous stats. This thing is a rolling train that if you're in the way, you're done. And if you're not, if you're trying to run away, it's still going to get you. It's smart enough to know where you are. I've used it once in my campaign. Obviously, I had to kind of finagle other things killing it because it's CR-19. So this is one I missed. Uh, really interesting creature. It's called the Retriever, which has a cute name. It sounds like a golden retriever, like a cute <laughs> dog. It's not. The Retriever is <laughs> a huge construct. It's a gigantic metallic spider with freaking eye lasers. How have I never seen this thing before? Uh, oh. It's it's CR-11. It, it is just it is literally a huge construct type creature. It will bite you, it will claw you, it will grab you. Uh, it has the spell-like ability to discern location at will. It knows where you are. It is relentless. That's just one of its abilities. It's called relentless. And it has freaking eye lasers that shoot out. They do a ton of damage. It can, like, do a bunch of different effects like fire, cold, electricity. It can even petrify you. I, now I need this just, like, chasing my characters around. They can't deal with it. How do I we deal with this? I just... Mm, what a great way. It's just like exactly what I expect. I want a giant robot spider thing. This is exactly what that is. I did not know this was in the bestiary. I always skipped it over because I just thought it was a normal spider. I never knew it was this cool construct, almost like a. We all know that, or I guess you don't, in case you don't know, in DD, there's this uh, sort of very iconic creature called a Beholder that sort of has eye stalks and different eye beam attacks. Kind of, this makes me think of that. It's got four different eye beams, one of them does petrification. Hmm. Well, it's about something you've kind of mentioned. I've picked some sort of like really the Medusa. Well, that's like we've heard that a million times. And I did that with the werewolf. And I'm going to do that again with the vampire. It's CR9. This alluring raven haired beauty casually wipes a trickle of blood from a pale cheek, then smiles to reveal needle sharp fangs. The reason I want to bring up the vampire, not that I'm especially interested in them because I'm not, because these guys are actually very scary. They've done a very good job putting stats to something to make it terrifying. It's got a ton of immunities. It's got DR. It's got resistances. It's got powerful spells that they can use many times per day. It's got energy drain, which is two levels. Greater invisibility. They've got high health. They have different forms. They can become a dire bat or a wolf. They've got gaseous form. Oops, I'm gone. Bye, see ya. What makes their ability to be a great boss is that they can summon creatures. They can dominate your players. They create spawn out of killed people, which means throw a couple NPCs in the battle. All of a sudden, you've got more vampires for them to fight with. Usually, they're weaker. They become um, like vampire spawn or something. I forget, but they're they're, they're less weak than a full you know vampire. Uh, and then, obviously, we talk about with the threat of lycanthropy, the threat of vampirism if they bite you. These guys are really scary. I don't remember whether or not it comes with this restriction, but I know sometimes vampires. Oh, they do. They do have a couple weaknesses. They kept some of the, like, iconic weaknesses of certain vampire lores. Vampires can't enter a private home or dwelling unless invited by someone with the authority to do so. I am pretty sure that they can't just, they just can't cross running water. That's just something a vampire can't do for one reason or another. So they do have some drawbacks uh, associated with their great power. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, did things like garlic and stuff kind of makes them uh, scared or makes them want to run away and stuff like that. Yeah, and I love the I love the idea that they don't cast reflection. I don't know who came up with that, but that's just like a really cool. That's a cool little piece of flavor. Like that'd be great in your campaign if like somehow your player noticed. Like you're in a room with him, he makes a perception check for something completely irrelevant, and then you go. Hey, uh, there's a mirror in this room, and you just realized that only you and your party members are being reflected. What? Yeah, the king you're talking to, he doesn't have a reflection. Oh, crap. <laughs> uh, hey, thanks, king. We got to go. What? What's wrong? Oh, no. We just remembered something. We got to go. Bye. You talk about using shadows as ghosts. There is a ghost-like creature here called the Wraith. This ghostly creature is little more than a dark shape with two flickering pinpoints of light where its eyes should be. It's incorporeal. We mentioned a little bit about that already. But um, what is really cool about these guys is they can create spawn, which could be fun if you have a bunch of NPCs in the battle, kind of like what I was talking about with the vampires. And uh, these these spawns become less powerful wraiths, and uh, they come in 1d4 rounds after death. So it's not like with the vampire, which takes like a certain, like 24 hours or 40 hours or something. This will happen in the battle round. And this can be sort of a thing that cascades out of control. You're fighting. You've got five NPCs. Your players are like, great, my play, my, my GM never gives me all these NPCs. Great, we'll just use them as fodder because, of course, every PC will do that. Every player is going to do that. And then when the four NPCs are dead, now you have a wraith and four wraith spawns. And guess what? When you kill a wraith that created the spawns, all spawns become full wraiths. Now you have four full wraiths to deal with. That's really cool. It's an opportunity for a knowledge check to say, yo, yo, yo. Kill the spawns first because they'll become more powerful after we kill the main guy. And it it does 1d6 points of conjuring with its attack, uh, you know, plus 1d6 points of negative energy, which really helps with this attrition. This sort of battle kind of has the idea of attrition to me, that you're dealing with it and it's creating spawns and those spawns might be creating more spawns. And you're trying to outlast it. And with this con damage, you're going to be losing that attrition war. You're slowly losing your max HP, sometimes faster than another if he rolls a six. They've got like a sunlight weakness, which is great. Like you can break open that thing in the ceiling, the cracked thing that the GM described. Whenever you describe something in the room, we know it's important. The GM describes a cracked ceiling. Let's try to destroy it. Uh, the light weakens him, makes it so much easier to fight with. Draw him outside. Um, and then if, if the CR5 is enough, that's fine. We can just use the Dread Wraith, which is a higher CR, uh, a harder version of this thing. And the last guy I really want to get into is the Zill, X-I-L-L. He's a CR6 creature. This flame-red humanoid appears to be a strange mix of insect and reptile with four arms and twitching fanged mandibles. This sort of has the alien inspiration, like the xenomorphs in the movie Alien, because it has this really cool thing where a Zill can lay 2d6 eggs in a helpless creature. A Zill's eggs hatch in 24 hours, at which point the young consume the host from within. The young then emerge and plain walk to the ethereal plane, if possible, to mature. Uh, here's the good question. Uh, how do we get these eggs out? These guys have plain walks. The Zill comes in. He paralyzes you. He lays an egg. He gets out. Um, what do we do? I've got eggs in me. We have 24 hours to figure out how to get these eggs out. <laughs> what are we going to do about the eggs, guys? <laughs> I mean, how, how do we get these out? What do we do? I mean, how do we, uh, I guess cut them out of your body? Oh, that'll go well. I don't know I have enough HP to, to survive you cutting them out of me. We need to figure this out, guys. And can we kind of figure this out now? Please, maybe? This is kind of a fun thing. Uh, it's usually upsetting when the the guy is plane walk. It's like, oh, I'm in, I'm out. We never got to really call, kill him. 
But when the idea that they perpetuate themselves in this way can be fun because the interest isn't in the battle. The battle will be interesting. They've got the lots of attacks. They've got a paralyzing bite. But the interest is what's happening after the battle, getting these eggs out of you. And if not, oh, we've got a bunch of zills that just disappeared. And that means there's six more zills in the world. And who knows where they're going to come when they're going to come back at us. Very scary. A little more scary, honestly, I think, than the Xenomorphs from Aliens. They can teleport. And if I could just mention a few very quickly. The Half-Fiend, which is a winged demon-infused minotaur. I just like the look of them. Minotaurs with wings. I'll take them every time. The Vrock, which is a demon. He's an 8-foot, 400-pound anthropomorphic vulture whose skin looks like just muscle tissue. And he's got this, like, stunning screech. It'll affect everyone that can hear it. Really cool-looking dude. I use him once in my campaign. Yeah, you like those muscles on it? The muscle the muscle witcher? <laughs> no, what have, what have we discovered? The doppelganger, which is... Uh, I'm less interested in him for his special tax, but for his flavor. He can take people's places, infiltrate society, because he sort of shapeshifts. Uh, the iron cobra, which is a cobra made of iron that is hollow, and it can be filled with poison. And it's got variations on it. I think that you were actually kind of talking to me about them. You were liking those. And then the uh, one of the Azatas, the Liland, because uh, she looks cool. I want to make a summoner, and I actually I think I ended up making one. I never played him. That has this as his Edelon, sort of the snake-bodied, beautiful woman top with the uh, with wings and a, a little harp. Uh, I think just it's a really cool aesthetic, uh, very beautiful and cool-looking thing. And then the warg, which is essentially a wolf who's intelligent and can speak and draws help help over here you go over and there's a pack of six wargs waiting for you they only have six intelligence but they're smart enough to lay traps and things those are kind of cool so we, we've just talked about some of the cool creatures we liked obviously i had more than christian because i just i just i i'm, I'm just a person who puts more effort into these podcasts people ladies and gentlemen i want you all to know that i'm just the better host and the better gm while we're at talking about what we're better at and when we're talking about the more who's that better things, I'm also uh, the bigger one. I am uh, 240 pounds, while Christian is a live, muscular, uh, whatever he is. That is far less than 240 pounds. So I'm better at you than everything. Even fat. Take that, Christian. Oh, no. I have been defeated. <laughs> I have been bested. Hey, Brian, you want to play role-playing games tonight? I can't. My body's trapped in this strange membrane. Wow. Should I... Take you to a doctor? Nah, it feels really good. Just put my earbuds in. No, that's just wrong. But here at Tales from the Lich, we're all right. When you can't play, listen. Talesfromthelich.com <sighs> That's just wrong. Let's talk about just a few of the iconic beasts you'll find in the bestiary. These are things that, whether it's from tradition, role-playing tradition, or Paizo is taking its own and made them into something. These are something that when you see them, you know them. There's something that recognizable, or if you don't now, you'll learn to be recognizing these things. Uh, the Abolis are a long-standing D&D race. They're these super intelligent, ancient, eldritch, fishy people. Uh, they used to rule the world, and they don't anymore because they just live at the bottom of the sea. Uh, but they think themselves, like, as deific, almost. They see themselves as above the gods. They were there before the gods. They're ancient, and they're evil. And unless you go to the bottom of the sea, you typically don't interact with them. But they do. They have a pretty cool uh, interpretation here in Pathfinder. And I don't want you to get the wrong impression. When we say fish people, they're giant fish. They're, like, bigger than whales. They're not, like, humanoid. These things are crazy. And a couple times we're going to hear me or Christian mention, I guess I can only speak for myself here, that these are D&D inspired things. I never, well, I did play D&D, but only once. I really didn't play D&D much at all. 
So uh, the things that I say are D&D inspired are, are things that I looked up, not that I know this from personal experience. So I may be, be wrong. Oh, the Apple is from D&D. And it was like, no, that's from Pathfinder. That may happen. Sorry if that happens. But uh, the animate object, that's that one is not just a monster, but it's a host of creatures. It's a spell. You'll, you'll find this in lots of dungeons and uh, any caster worth his salt at a certain level is going to cast this at one time or another. Or I think you can even you can create them with like the craft construct feat and give them like additional abilities. And it's not restricted to anything. It could be any object or group of objects, medium sized. Mm-hmm. As we all know, goblins are in Pathfinder. They're basically Paizo's mascot. Uh, they have a playable race, they have a bunch of archetypes, they have a lot of feats, they have a lot of coverage. Uh, they've gotten a lot of support through a lot of books. They even have their own modules, they have Weeby Goblins, uh, Weeby Goblins 2, and Weeby Goblins 3, I think? Oh, free, I'm sorry, it's Weeby Goblins free. It's supposed to be three, but they make them for the free week of RPG tables, games. They, uh, the bugbear, which is often paired with a goblin, many first-level parties will come across this as their first boss. There's a boulette, uh, not like a bullet from a gun. Um, a boulette is a land shark uh, from the 1990s Saturday Night Live skit. It is literally land shark. <laughs> I've used this against my players, and they're terrifying. I want to say land shark is not like a humanoid shark. It's kind of like this armored almost lizardy looking thing it's got a sharp long pointed head and it burrows under the earth it kind of swims through the earth and hunts people and things down but they've got the top fin you gotta have it when they're going through the ground you gotta see that fin that's what makes it scary the gelatinous cube transparent uh it, so you don't know when you're coming across it and when you do you know because you're now paralyzed it'll eat, it'll eat you away slowly very dumb low ac low attack very hard to get trapped in it, but if you do, you are pretty much screwed. And it can even get uh, more difficult players. I gave the Gelatinous Cube an advanced template, and one of my players who was like level 14 got caught in it. An advanced template only adds plus 4 to everything. So, so you know, these guys can be they can be uh, tough, but they're, they're definitely a thing from D&D. We have the representation of ghouls as, you know, kind of like zombie-like people. Uh, not slow-shuffling zombies, but angry, runny zombies. Uh, their big thing is that they're low CR, but... Their attacks can possibly paralyze you, and they tend to travel in packs, so they can actually become overwhelming very quickly. One person fails their, you know, their will save or fort save, whichever it is. Next ghoul comes up in coup de grace, you paralyze teammate. They can be very, very uh, powerful under the wrong circumstances. Or under the right circumstances, am I right, guys? <laughs> and they can also turn other people into ghouls. They have, you get ghoul fever, you can become one. For me, there before like the troop rules came out, which is a, a, a setting, to, a rule set to allow you to use a lot of enemies in a battle easily. Uh, it's the better version of the zombie for sending in a bunch of guys that are far more of a threat in number than individuals. There's the knoll, which seems to be a fan favorite. Of course, I like it. Kind of reminds me of a hyena. I think they look cool. I don't know why, but pe- just players seem to universally like knolls. They look good. The art did a good job for them, I think. Just just players, just the people you interact with, Kay, the people around you and associate yourself with that kind of have the same interests as you do. Well, most the most way I interact with anyone who plays Pathfinder is over the internet, and I think we all know how the internet feels about animal people. <laughs> uh, it's a very mixed bag, actually. Just the close-minded ones. <laughs> we spoke before uh, both of the Mimic and the Rust Monster. Um, they're very classic monsters we've seen in a lot of tabletop RPGs before Pathfinder. 
The Rust Monster specifically has been in every edition of D&D. The Owl Bear, which you'll see in D&D. I think a lot of people know it from World of Warcraft. And of course, there's a Tarask, which is the regenerating, unkillable, like super powerful CR20. You, you can't actually kill it. It's going to eat your world creature. I think, but this in this bestiary was the most. It's the most powerful beast, and it was the most pretty much the most powerful beast in the game until you know later bestiaries decided to top it. Very famous though for being just super. T- There's a person who I remember made like an entire city built off of it. It's like they captured Tarask, and you're using its regenerating regenerating capabilities to like fuel this entire city's economy. It's pretty interesting. Well, Christian, oof, that was that was a lot of information. Uh, why, don't, why don't we wrap it all up? When I look at this book, to me, the theme of it is basics. Uh, and I think it laid the foundations well. Um, it introduced many of the monsters that are basic to the fantasy genre. Sort of standard fantasy fare. We've seen magical animals like the Chimera, the Manicore, the Cockatrice, the Unicorn, Pegasus, Griffin, Phoenix. Literary monsters like the Cyclops, the Medusa, the Minotaur, the Harpy, the Hydra, the Kraken. Things tied to nature, the Dryad, the Satyr, the Nymph, the Treant, the Centaur, the Yeti. Generic, the skeleton, the mummy, the lich, the ogre, the gargoyle, the werewolf, the vampire, the succubus, the drider. This is the foundation. These are the basics that you'll come across in any any fantasy genre. And it introduced many what I would call essential enemies and types. Angels and demons, golems and elementals, lycanthropes, dragons, basic animals. It has a good CR spread, so campaigns of any level will have beasts to work with. It gives you more player options such as more player races than the core ones, the Asimir, the Drow, the Duragar, the Goblin, the Hobgoblin, the Kobold, the Merfolk, the Orc, the Surf Neblin, the Tengu, and the Tiefling are all introduced here. Surf Neblin. Yes, thank you. And uh, and more familiars for you to choose from. I think it's it's just it's the basic book if you need to have a bestiary. Further on, we're going to get bestiaries that sort of do different things. This one is the most, in my opinion, universal. It's hitting all of the points you need to hit. Is this book worth the money, Christian? That's the question we have to ask, and I want to answer for our players. Anyone who's listening here, we did label this as a review. This might be an opportunity to talk about what I mean, the difference between a review and an overview. We've done the race overview. We've done some in the uh, class overviews, and I've called them overviews because uh, they weren't meant to be a review of this. Do we think that this guy is worth the money to buy? Is he uh, good enough? We read it a little more word for word to tell you how it works. An overview is explaining this is how this thing works. To me, a review is less of an explaining of how it works. For example, in this, we didn't explain exactly what DR meant and incorporeal and everything and go down to the rules on the basics of every monster we covered. The review to me more is going over something and, 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 and giving our opinions on it and then recommending it or not recommending it. And so hitting that review sort of theme I want to give you guys our opinion of do we think this book is worth the money? And I would say a resounding yes for the home brewer, which I've always been. If you only ever bought this bestiary, you would have everything you need to run adventure after adventure, both monster type variety and power variety. If you're on a budget, this is one of your must buys. And while the monster creation I would call difficult, for a person willing to learn it, it allows you to make your own monsters as well. Christian, for the guy who runs pre-mades, is this as necessary? So for pre-mades, for adventure paths and modules, the way it usually is handled is that unique enemies, unique NPCs will have their stats laid out in the book for you. But for the more generic stuff, like if you ran into, say, in Rise of the Rune Lords, it's going to say, like, you know, this encounter is six hill giants. 
refer to Bestiary 1 for the hill giant entry. It's not going to repeat that mm. entry throughout the book. It's going to refer you to the Bestiary that that creature comes from rather than reprinting it. Uh, mm. Now, whether or not this is worth the like 45 bucks I think it is right now is worth it is kind of up to you. I'm someone that does everything digitally. I have... Uh, sheets set set up with the monsters I expect my players to encounter with links to those entries on like Paizo's SRD or something like that. Um, rather than having a physical book, you can always purchase the PDF so you can use it on your computer or your tablet if you're a DM that has those sort of things open when you are DMing. Uh, the PDF is only $10 instead of the hardcover book. I do not deny the usefulness of being able to flip through the book and, you know, pick out these creatures based on the art. I never owned this book, and Caleb, like, suggested that, and I, you know, I tried doing that, and I that's what I found stuff like The Retriever, which, you know, I don't think I would have discovered otherwise. I think this book is, it's pretty much worth it. This is available online. Being able to parse through it physically, you have creatures that could be used in any campaign. I really think this is a great foundation. Like Caleb said, it's a really good CR spread. A lot of good different type spreads where you can have creatures with many different uh, applications and different settings, different themes, different atmospheres. It's not just all high fantasy. There's a lot of stuff here that works in different settings or at least can be reskinned to very easily. And, you know, you make such a good point. Pathfinder is... uh a system that has done a great job of releasing all of its content for free online, or I shouldn't say all, a great portion of its content and its rule set for free online. Uh, so you can find, you can look up right now Vampire Stats, and you can look up right now the Bugbear Stats of Pathfinder without ever buying the book. Uh, I think you do lose the one major thing, especially for me, I've said ad nauseum, I'm sure you're tired of hearing me say this, um, is that you lose the pictures. The PDF or the book, you're going to get those pictures, which to me, are huge inspirations. You won't find that on the PRD, of the SRD. Christian, our first book review. We did it. Bestiaries are, are, are very interesting to me. I look forward to continuing to cover the bestiaries. Um, we'll, we're, we haven't decided yet. We'll still talk about what order we're going to release these on. I think the core rule book is something we should probably do soon because like the reason we started with 101, uh, Pathfinder 101 is because we knew that it would help the most people. And I think covering the core rule book will help a lot of people. The meme, man, I would be happy to just continue to go through these bestiaries. I love them so much, um, but that might get boring. We'll have to talk about how we're going to proceed forward. But we do plan on continuing uh, to review these books uh, sporadically as we go through other series on the network. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for listening. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great Pathfinder podcasts, visit our site, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? You can email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. I've been Nicholas Laborde. Thanks for listening.